Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We are going to do something a little bit different today. We have a very, very special guest, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass, who is the author of a new book titled Them, Why We Hate Them and How to Heal. Thanks for joining me, Senator. I appreciate it very much. Good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I think I know why we hate them. I'm just not sure how we heal. So we'll get to that in just a moment. I, you know, given everything that's going on, I there's a couple things I just have to I have to ask you. Do you sometimes feel that what you are doing that that it it is feel like spitting into a hurricane, given the nature of our politics and our, our discourse today? Uh, sure, but I still think it's important. I just think we have to bound what politics can do and what it can't do. So I've, I've got three kids uh, ranging from age 17 down to seven, and I fly away from them four or five nights most weeks because I do think that politics matters. But I think that one of the dangers of our moment is that there are a lot of weirdos in politics who think that politics is the first thing and sometimes even the only thing. And American politics don't work that way. So the only way our politics can work is if they're smaller than everything. But that doesn't mean they're nothing. And right now, I do think we have a a massive chunk of the populace that's saying all of you weirdos, screamers on both the right and the left are really strange and you're swallowing it all. And so we're checking out of politics and it leaves the playing field to more and more of the political addicts. And I want to be clear when I say screamers on the right and the left, I'm not implying that I think the policy solutions are at some mushy middle, but I think we need two dimensions in how we think about our politics. One of them is right versus left on what policy solutions you want to advocate. But another one is a sort of uh, north south or a a y axis of the intensity with which you want to see politics crowd out the rest of life. And right now, lots of our political actors are people who only know and think and care about politics. And historically, they're they're misaligned with what America's meant. I think the most important point that you make, though, is that that our tribal differences, we talk about our tribal politics. uh, And as you point out, our tribal differences really predate our politics, that that, that in fact, you know, the, the, the nature of, of our divisions, that we are always uh, tribal in, in, in nature, and that we used to have other more healthy outlets for our tribalism, and that's all been subsumed by this political nature, this political uh, climate that we have right now. So can we talk about that just for a moment, about the, the tribes that, that have been well, so we say uh, uh, eclipsed by social media and by these louder voices of, uh, of, of ideological rage. Yeah, I think that we need to distinguish between good and bad tribes because it's clearly the case that the kinds of tribalism we're seeing in politics uh, are bad. The idea that you assume that people who happen to be on the same end of a legislative prioritization voting continuum with you are people that you're supposed to be aligned with about everything, and people who are on the other side of policy preferences are people that you're supposed to regard as them and think about as evil. That's weird because we've all got a whole bunch of identities, um, and most of the really important ones have nothing to do with politics. And so I, I would define the good tribes as your family, uh, your friends, your neighborhood, uh, your workplace, uh, your local worshiping community, uh, all of those things that drive happiness. Do I have a nuclear family? Do I have a couple of durable friendships that I think are going to last uh, over the course of a lifetime? Do I have shared vocation? Do I have coworkers? Do I have people that I believe things in common with about death and suffering? All of those tribes are ultimately related to embodiment and to place. 
uh, and tech to textured community. And in a nation of 320 million people, people that I might be aligned with about partisan politics, um, that's useful. It's an alliance. I want to advance a cost-effective infrastructure bill, but you're not going to find good and evil in politics, and you're not going to find happiness in politics. There's nobody who just happens to be a co-belligerent in your same political party that, though they live far away, they're going to comfort you when you're when you're hurting in your old age. And right now, I think we're allowing distant identities to replace local identities and to crowd them out. And you know, we've got data that shows you are much more likely to be happy if you know the person who lives two doors away from you. Um, but if you go from 200 to 500 social media friends or 500 to 1,000 social media friends, there's no data that shows you get any happier. But if you're spending a whole bunch of time trying to groom uh, your hot takes for the 1,000th social media friend you have, you're actually much less likely to know the person two doors away from you that could have given you some happiness and joy and an opportunity to serve. Well, and you and you use the you know the the image of the Friday night football game or a little league game where you would show up and you would have interactions with people in in a non political environment. And I think about those relationships that I used to have. We didn't talk about you know tax rates. We didn't talk about Supreme Court justices. We we interacted with one another as as human beings. Whereas it's very very easy now to sit alone and uh, interact with people who agree with you. And if you hear something you don't like, you can literally um, erase them with a click or a swipe. So we don't have, we, you know, and, and in a society, and you cite bowling alone, uh, which I think is, uh, is such an important work, how we have become atomized, but we still want to believe, we want to belong to something, right? I mean, you know, we may not have the bowling team. We may not go to the little league games. We may not, may not go to church anymore, but a lot of Americans don't. But we still desperately want to belong to something. And unfortunately, a lot of us have decided us, you know, decided to belong to a political tribe or a social media tribe. And that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think, first of all, we are relational uh, beings. We are social animals. We are meant to do stuff together. We're, we humans are obviously nouns, but we're also verbs. And we want to go out and act and we don't want to act alone. We want to be a part of a group that's rowing on, pulling on oars in the same direction and headed somewhere. And I think your flagging uh, Robert Putnam is, is really important because there has been a collapse of associational, neighborly, uh, Tocquevillian America, if you will, uh, over the course of the last many decades. And so when I've been talking about this book, Them on the Road, so many national political media want to make everything immediately about Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump can't fix this stuff because Donald Trump didn't uh, cause this stuff. He definitely picks at this but the problems we're dealing with are many decades in the coming, and they're going to be many decades into the future uh, to figure out how to resolve it. There's an inherent tension in our moment between rootedness and mm-hmm. rootlessness. Almost everything we're learning about happiness, and again, this is just sort of wisdom literature that's millennia old, but in social science now, what we're learning about happiness, about deep friendship, about a nuclear family structure, about coworkers and shared vocation, all of those things that actually drive happiness, they tend to be linked to a place where you have roots and where people are going to be with you beyond any kind of present transactional moment, beyond this media cycle, whether it's 24 hours long or 24 minutes long, the thing that actually matter in your life are do you have durable relationships and they tend to be rooted in place but our technology is whispering to us this temptation that you can be rootless 
mm-hmm. don't actually have to live where you are. And so if my mother-in-law annoys me uh, tonight, she's not actually visiting, but if she were, we were, oh, she were over and were annoying me at the dinner table, my iPhone whispers to me, hey, it's game three, four, five of the World Series. Uh, sneak away to check the box score under the table at dinner. And by the way, I love baseball. Uh, I love football. And I want to know what's happening in those games. But if I am checking my phone every fourth minute, as the average American does now, um, there is a temptation to say, don't actually build a relationship with the person that's in front of you. Invest more of your identities in some social media or news consumption or political tribe that's far away. But all of that's like cotton candy because it doesn't actually produce any durable happiness. Well, and a lot of other consequences. Well, you, you have a very haunting image in your book about loneliness, about uh, the kid who is sitting alone at lunch at school. Was that you? Uh, no, but I feel like I ache uh, for having seen that scene. My dad was a high school football and wrestling coach. And um, when I was a little kid, I, I remember, I don't know exactly how the school calendar worked out, but I went to a Lutheran elementary school. My dad was at the public middle school and high school. So if our calendars didn't align, I'd sometimes follow my dad through the day. And like any big you know, muscular coach, he got assigned uh, lunchroom duty. And I have burned deep in my mind uh, from being, you know, a second grader, watching my dad walk around with his whistle and try to maintain order in a cafeteria mm-hmm. that could descend into chaos with, you know, 500 kids in it or whatever. But the image to me was not the chance that somebody was going to have a food fight. It was that often seven corners around the room, there'd be some kids sitting alone at lunch. And mm-hmm. I just felt wrong about that, that institutional uh, you know, 5,000, 500 person scale lunchroom. And I think that a huge part of what's happening in uh, modern America is more and more people are that kid sitting alone in the lunchroom, but they're using social media to pretend there's actually more thickness in their life. 43% mm-hmm. of Americans now tell pollsters they have either zero confidants at all or only one. That's, that's a lonely world. Uh, it, it is the you know d- during the you know 2015 and 2016 election one of the things that really I, I think uh, I, I found to be very very disconcerting and very disorienting was 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 watching the increased tribalism of our politics and and why people would believe things that are not true and you talk about this including the the you know f- future uh, threat posed by deep fake. And it was was only when I started reading about uh, the role of tribalism in books like uh, Jonathan Hates, The Righteous Mind, that it sort of began to click into place because people like you and I may think that we use our minds in order to determine what is true, uh, that we are logical beings. And what social psychologists are pointing out, of course, now is that, uh, no, a lot of us use our minds in order to strengthen our bonds to our tribes. And, and those tribal ties are so strong that we really do engage in this motivated reasoning. And I know you talk about this, you know, that that you really do want a safe space where you will be able to hear the facts that you want and avoid the facts that you don't want. If something is necessary for you to maintain the tribe, you'll look for something that will confirm that fact. And if something, you know, threatens to disturb your links to the tribe, you will go to great links to uh, to discredit that. And of course, we see that playing out all the time on social media. And it's it, it's an insight that's helped me understand how much you know you know you know how otherwise rational people can embrace rather deranged ideas and actual fake news. And my sense is that's getting worse. I think you're right. I think that um, social um, 
the social psychology of the way we consume information shows that there is so much more confirmation bias in everybody. All of us are, are guilty of this in that a simple way to think about it is in the history of philosophy of science, there was a big debate about um, coherence theories of truth and correspondence theories of truth. And if you're building a map of the world, you of course want your map in your head to be mm -hmm. properly proportioned inside itself. You want it to be coherent. You also want it to correspond to reality. You want the, the map to have touch points between the picture you're drawing and what actually happens in the larger world. But it turns out we're much more interested in our own internal coherence than actual correspondence. So when we, re when we discover a fact that doesn't fit our theory, we're far more likely to reinterpret the fact than use that as an actual challenge to our theory because we want to hold to the same idea day over day, week over week, month over month, and that's understandable. This, is, this has been a way that we've coped and tried to make sense of the world. But one of the things that I think is exacerbating this, this sort of warped tendency in human logic is that in social media, we can get into an echo chamber or a silo where we start to only get those facts that we already agreed with. So the number of outliers, the, the number of challenges to our theory or to our worldview becomes smaller. And what ends up happening then is we become much less humble. We become more certain that our theory works because the media world, and I mean this not in a disparaging way about particular reporters, but the way we consume uh, media in a world where 93% of American households now have access to 500 or more uh, broadcast or cable channels, and where we've got infinite choices on social media, what happens is they know that there are no 70% audiences left. Everybody is competing to get yeah. up toward 1% of an audience. And so they know what you clicked on yesterday, and therefore, they know what has a better chance of serving you up advertising today by giving you more stuff that's like the story you chose yesterday, not the story you didn't choose. And so we end up warping the world in kind of a fun house of mirrors into things that are already what we believed. And it makes it a lot harder to have a republic filled with principled pluralists who say, hey, I actually believe these particular things. Theology is at the center of my worldview and all these angular things I believe about Jesus matter a lot. But I also want to understand somebody else's worldview. I want to be neighborly with other people in this republic to maintain order for liberty um, by, by preserving space for them to have their freedom of assembly and speech and religion, et cetera, et cetera. The way we're consuming media right now leads us deeper into these 1% silos where the main thing we have in common is the things we're against outside our silo. Yeah. And I think that's accelerating. Now, your piece, your, your, your book basically says, you know, how, how do we fix this? Not by legislation, because we're talking about souls and habits, not prohibitions and mandates. Now, I agree with that. Absolutely. I'm not sure whether that's bad news or good news, because basically changing people's souls and their habits seems infinitely harder than changing rules and laws, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is both good news and bad news, but it's far more good news than bad news. So the bad news is uh, we're not going to fix this fast. And so if, if we think there's some quick fix, if only we could pass a piece of legislation mm -hmm. that ends loneliness and mandates that everybody visit you know, their, their kin. By the way, China's done this. Uh, this loneliness mm -hmm. epidemic is happening around the world in first world nations where technology is uprooting us from place. And China's passed a law making sure that the young, uh, yuppie, richer folks who get to cities have to go back to the countryside and visit their grandparents. There is no really? legislation that's going to rebuild social capital yeah, three years ago, huh. uh, mandating your return visits back to, to mom and dad and grandma and grandpa on the farm. Um, there isn't legislation that's going to rebuild social capital and restore uh, virtuous habits 
But the good news about this is that in an American republic, there there has always been the challenge of dealing with what the next generation presents to us as the ways that we have Republican, small r, Republican uh, virtue again. What's new in our moment is the pace of technological change. The backdrop for my whole book is really that we're living through a digital revolution that's upending not just economics, but local culture. And so I think that this moment is going to produce more high-quality, low-cost stuff than any economy has ever envisioned in the history of the world. But what's also becoming clear is that just because we have huge material surplus doesn't actually mean that people get spiritual and relational and communal satisfaction out of having a lot more stuff. So we're going to have to figure out the habits of rootedness for an increasingly nomadic, rootless digital age. I think we'll rebuild those habits, but the the bad news, as you say, um, is not going to come fast because there is no magic bullet. It really is about habits and relationships and figuring out the ways that we put our technology in certain kinds of boxes and bounds, not let us let it reshape our whole worldview and all of our sensibilities. And and this, this I think, is, is, is important because uh, there is no no white knight that's going to come in and solve this problem. There, there's, there's no political sea change or technical change that is actually going to change that. It really is a crisis of uh, of individual souls. It is a crisis of citizenship. Um, I, I also, want to ask you just about uh, other things in in terms of like how do you feel about proposals for to encourage more, for example, national service? Um, are, are are there some things? That the private sector, that philanthropy, that uh, that other organizations can do to encourage this kind of connectedness. So I'm open to the proposals, but I want them to be real and not make work. And I think that's why this fits into a larger problem of our moment, which is that technology really is displacing labor faster than it's ever happened before. And since we know, I mentioned those drivers of human happiness, family, uh, friendship, theological or or worldview framework to deal with death and suffering. But statistically, the number one driver of happiness is do you have meaningful work? Not Mm -hmm. are you getting rich? not are your coworkers annoying, but when I go home at the end of the day, do I think some actual neighbor benefited from the work that I did? And nomads, you know, had no conception of job choice. Farmers from 10,000 years ago, agrarian revolution until 150 years ago, had no real sense of job choice. There were a couple of specialists. Somebody was a pastor, somebody was a lawyer somewhere. Um, but by and large, you just had the job and the calling that grandma and grandpa had back generations. Um, only the Industrial Revolution 150 years ago creates job choice, but it was in, in huge disruptions, by the way, very similar to our moment. Urbanization, industrialization created the same sort of loneliness epidemic as people went from the farm to the city. But job choice happened once uh, between you know age 15 and 20 yeah. or whatever. You got a new calling. You kept it for life. What's new in our time? is we're going to have job disruption at age 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, forever more. And we've never had a civilization of lifelong learners that have to get retrained. That problem means that most solution, but problem in that great economic bounty again, but human disruption, that problem means that national service proposals are likely going to be make work because I do a lot of intel uh, and mm-hmm. defense and national security issues. And there's nobody at the Pentagon who wants to move anyway, anywhere away from an all-volunteer force because they need the willing to be there. And so anything like compulsory national service is probably going to be make work stuff. And so I think we'd need to figure out what would it look like to create a shared experience. My, my last book, 
uh, before this one was about perpetual adolescence and mm-hmm. motivated by a lot of similar concerns to what you and I are talking about here. I want us to have some big shared experiences. I want them to come about in a form that isn't driven by World War II or the mm-hmm. Cold War. But the reality is probably only necessity is going to drive us back together in some meaningful way besides the long slog of learning these habits anew together. I'd love it if there were some national security way to build a common America experience. Right now, it isn't clear to me what the need is that would make it any on, on the demand hmm. side that would make it anything other than make work. Yeah, that, I mean that, that that of course is always the the, the problem. What about uh, the role of education? And maybe back into this that that we no longer have a a we story of America. We no longer have this uh, the shared narrative of what it means to be a people. Uh, is 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 it time for a a recommitment to civics education, to teaching, because I, I mean, you look at the electorate and as, as they become more and more fractured, and I do think that we're paying a price for the dumbing down of our education. We don't teach civics. We don't teach the rule of law. We don't teach history. All of those things. Is there a role for reinvigorating this idea of what it means to be an American citizen um, through either K-12, college, anyone? Yes. Yes. And amen. So uh, one of the most important people in American life right now, I think, in terms of the positive influence he's had is Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, Hamilton uh, spoke to a generation of kids who've never done any civics or known any civics. And uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda decided to come in and do a bunch of civics for us. And that's a real blessing. He's still a giant, right? I mean, arguably the the biggest Broadway production ever. Um, And yet it's still way too small for the need we have at this moment. But we need more stuff like that. Mm -hmm. The problem is in the divides we have at this current moment, any conversation about civics will fall underneath, you know, the the blood feud screaming matches of modern identity politics. I, I, I believe in the American immigration tradition, but I think we need to recognize that one of the challenges of our moment is that we don't know how to do assimilation to immigrants because we're not doing assimilation to our own kids right now. And we, we stand at, I guess, the second highest foreign born rate in U.S. history right now at 13 percent and change. We were at high 14 percent. Um, in 1890 and 1910. And I think one of the main reasons we don't know how to do assimilation is because we really aren't having coming of age uh, narratives that bind all Americans together. So in them, I spend, I don't know, 40, 45% of the book on constructive stuff. What do we do about this? And one of my chapters is we need to become Americans again. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways you become American is you embrace the founding understanding that all Americans are supposed to conceive of themselves as minorities. Ultimately, we should see ourselves as credal minorities that are skeptical of simple majoritarianism, uh, the same the same sort of instant certainty of Twitter mobs that know they're right on every issue at the first moment because they think the world is divided into good guys and bad guys. And if you're on the right side of a majority on one particular cultural war fight in your mind, then you can talk like the certainty of people uh, like, you know, Governor Cuomo in New York has said there's no place in New York for people who are pro-lifers. What yeah, the helpful. heck are you talking about? Uh, so we need to have a world where lots of Americans are saying, actually, I believe a whole bunch of things that might not be majority popular at some future moment. And so I should want to unite arms together with lots of other people who are cradle minorities so that together we hold back the majoritarian certainty that wants to see politics and power crowd out conversation and neighborhood. All right. I, I love this. But is anyone in American politics other than Ben Sass talking about what you are just talking about? 
I get that I'm an outlier right now. Um, I don't think I'm an outlier with the American people, though. I don't. I don't know that I'm succeeding at communicating with very many of them. But there was a research study that some sociologists, political scientists, did about three weeks ago uh, called "Hidden Tribes," and mm-hmm. this part you and I were talking about about right mm-hmm. versus left, but also intensification of political addiction. They they uh, divided America into seven cohorts. And one of the most interesting things was that two of the seven cohorts were addicted to politics and the other five were pretty skeptical of politics. Those two cohorts most addicted were 8% on the left and 6% on the far right. Uh, And those two cohorts were both very rich and very white (laughs) and increasingly self-certain that politics should drive everything else out of our conversation. David Brooks had the great line that Mm -hmm. said, it feels like there's an elite rich people's white civil war going and everybody else just has to take a back seat and wait for it to end. Well, the five-sevenths of America, or statistically 86%, more than five-sevenths, but five out of seven demographic groups, say, all you people who think politics are the center of life, you're weirdos. And so I believe that. I I used to joke when I was on the campaign trail, uh, I'm a first-time politician, I guess I'm one of eight out of 100 in the Senate who's never run for anything before. When I was on the campaign trail in 2013-14, I used to say one of the reasons I'm running is to displace some other political addict who might have won if I didn't run. <laughs> Somebody else would go to Washington and announce that politics can fix all your problems. That isn't true. And so what's weird right now is that I think the majority view in America, which is that politics is a means to an end, politics is about maintaining a framework for ordered liberty, the majority view doesn't have very much representation in Washington because our politics are so kind of crude and nasty and stupid that the people who run tend to be people who don't have much in their lives besides politics. We mm-hmm. need fewer of those people in Washington and we need term limits. I, uh, I actually interviewed one of the authors of that uh, hidden tribe study last week on, uh, on public radio. And I found it absolutely fascinating because I've always had that suspicion that our politics is really being um, totally driven and dominated by the, the two loud mouths at the opposite end of the bar and the, and the rest of the people just want to get on with their lives. So I, the obvious question though, if the answer is not politics, why do you want to stay in politics? Why do you want to be a United States senator instead of being, I don't know, a university president? I used to be a university president. It's a great <laughs> calling. Uh, it's, it's an honorable way to love your neighbor. Uh, I have this calling for six years, but one of the things I told Nebraskans is that for four and a half of the six years, um, I'm going to act like I never planned to run for this or anything else again. And then we'll reevaluate it. So our clock uh, ticks to my wife and I have a date planned for late July and early August of 2019 to go deliberate about the future. But I think there are big problems in our politics that require solutions. That just doesn't mean that I have to believe that politics should become my religion and crowd everything else out. I think there are lots of good people in my community doing great work as plumbers. uh, But that doesn't mean that they think plumbing is the way you're going to, you know, build heaven. The Daily Standard podcast is brought to you today by RX Bar. RX Bar set out to create a new kind of protein bar with a few simple, clean ingredients and where every ingredient serves a purpose. They're among my favorites. RX Bar believes in the power of transparency and lets the core ingredients do all of the talking. All of them are listed right on the front of the package. You'll likely recognize RX Bar at the shelf. They're the ones who have egg whites for protein, dates to bind, nuts for texture, and other delicious ingredients like unsweetened chocolate, real fruit, and spices like sea salt or cinnamon. 
Our X bars come in 14 delicious flavor varieties. Mango, pineapple, chocolate, hazelnut, peanut butter, chocolate, coffee, peanut butter, chocolate, and coffee chocolate, and seasonal flavors too. I could list them all, but who knew? You can go check. Our X bars are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, no artificial colors, no artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers, and they are great for so many things. Breakfast on the go, snack at the office to push you through your three o'clock slump, throw your bag, um, throw one in your bag for a plane. I always, I never actually get on a plane without having an RX bar. You can toss it in your backpack for a bike ride or a hike, pre-workout snack, post-workout snack. Look, um, I have been using these RX bars you know, on, on tra- I travel a lot and I bring them along all the time because you know, you can never actually count on the airlines to feed you, or whether or not there's going to be a delay. And I will tell you that when I reach in the bag and I find that I have an RX bar, it kind of makes my day. So for 25% off your first order and free shipping, visit rxbar.com standard and enter promo code standard at checkout. That's rxbar.com standard. Enter promo code standard at checkout for 25% off your first order. The, no, the real danger, of course, is that if people like you decide that you want to uh, leave politics, you do leave politics in the hands of the loudmouths at the end of the bar. And uh, that's that that's part of the dilemma that that people who don't see politics as the center of our life, if they don't go into politics, they basically cede that territory to the uh, the obsessives. Yeah, you're, you're naming a huge part of why I ran. I think that the list of things that Washington should be dealing with is mostly past versus future, mostly not right versus left. I'm the second or third most conservative voter in the Senate. But most of what I care about is how are we going to deal with uh, the disruption of the workforce that means 40 and 45 and 50 year olds get disrupted out of jobs forevermore? We need to think about job retraining in mid-career. We need to reorient our entitlement over promising from a 1950s or 1960s chassis that assumed lifelong employment to a world where we're going to have much shorter duration jobs. We need a cyber strategy and a cyber doctrine for an age where digital disruption is going to allow not just Russia, who does it all the time now in a clunky way, but China, who's going to do mm-hmm. it in an effective way in the future to pick at the scabs of our internal divisions with deep fakes, the audio and video that aren't real, but that exacerbate all those echo chamber silo uh, confirmation biases that you point to. That stuff's really important. I got little kids and I'm worried about the country uh, 10 and 20 years in the future. And a lot of the solutions uh, to these particular problems are political, but I don't think you can do politics well if you're trying to find good and evil grand meaning in politics. So I think we got a bunch of political addicts who are displacing the majority American view uh, that politics should be a means to an end and a framework for ordered liberty. And these people both destroy local conversations and culture about things that shouldn't be about politics. And oh, by the way, they don't actually deliver effective politics either. Because I can't, you don't have a uh, a conversation about compromise on an infrastructure prioritization bill with people that you just screamed at yesterday as good versus evil. Politics needs to be a lot more humble, get the urgent things done uh, with less shouting and get the heck out of the way of most of the grand philosophical things that people should be wrestling through in their neighborhood over dinner with people they're building longer term durable relationships with, not just today's argument. Well, we've had a remarkable conversation. I think the most remarkable thing about it, uh, the most remarkable thing of all about this conversation is we have not mentioned Donald Trump's name once, have we? We have not talked about Trumpism. So I guess the question is, 
you know, what is the role of a conservative Republican who agrees with Donald Trump on many policy issues, and you have voted with the administration, what is the role of a conservative Republican in the age of Trump, given what is happening with a political culture that you've written this book about? I think we have to distinguish between civics and legislation, because I'll just gently push back on one one premise of the question. Uh, it's less that I agree with uh, President Trump than that the president has come to embrace my policy position. <laughs> okay. But I, I mean that in a in a humble way. But the reality is I've been a conservative for a lot longer than Donald Trump has. And I'm going to remain a conservative long after his term is over, regardless of whatever calling I have in, in public life or not in public life. But I am a conservative and I ran with a certain set of policy and legislative priorities that I told Nebraskans I was for. And so I still hold the same positions I held. If sometimes the president comes around to adopting my positions, I'm glad about that. Uh, I'd rather have the legislation I've been for than the legislation I wasn't for. And yet the bigger stuff, the more important stuff we're wrestling with in this conversation is well upstream from legislation. The really big stuff is about culture. It is about economics. It is about shared civics and the ways people are going to find work through a disrupted workforce in 10 and 15 years are about whether or not they're going to be able to put bread on the table and whether or not they're going to find meaning in the world, whether or not there is a rotary club and a little league in their community. And by the way, these institutions statistically really are atrophying fast. That stuff's going to drive whether or not they're happy. And Washington can't fix that. Washington can make it worse, but Washington surely can't fix it. And so there needs to be room for the upstream from politics stuff. And then in politics, we should do the best we can with the legislative issues that are before us. But we do need to have people in politics who refuse to go straight to a world that says every conversation always has to be swallowed by Donald Trump. Whether you love him, if your listeners are uh, love his style and or his legislative priorities or that subset of your listeners who are against his legislative priorities and despise them altogether, wherever people are on Trump versus anti-Trump questions, so what? American life has challenges that are going to be a lot longer to be worked out than Donald Trump's presidency. And we need more people that are unwilling to let the whole world be swallowed by the next seven minutes of what's on my Chiron about what he just tweeted. <laughs> that shouldn't be the center of everything. Senator Ben Sass, thank you so much for joining me. Um, ben Sass's book is Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. And there are a lot of dumb political books being published, and this is not one of them. This is, I think, one of the more important and thoughtful contributions to this, this long-term political and cultural moment that we are in. So, uh, Senator Sass, thank you so much for joining us on the Daily Standard Podcast. Charlie, thanks for the invite. And on the paperback, we're using that as a new blurb. There are a lot of dumb books, and this isn't one of them. <laughs> you feel, feel free to do that. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.